Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. saying that this morning the message that I'm preaching is something that the Lord is preaching to me lately. I don't preach this message as someone who has heard these words and has had real victory in it, but as somebody who is wanting to grow in this area very much. And that is in the area of prayer. And so I want to... um, I want to ask you, I'm going to start by an informal poll, and I thought there were several ways to ask this question, but I'll ask it this way. Show me, by raising your hand, how many of you really feel like you should be praying a little bit more, like you just feel like prayer is lacking in your life, okay? And how many of you are just not satisfied with your prayer life? So that's a lot of us. I just thought it would be easier than having a few who are and be like, yeah, I'm awesome. You know, it'd just be a little harder. But listen, you're in good company. Not really good company, but you're not alone in feeling that way. According to most studies, um, evangelical pastors pray an average of 12 to 30 minutes a day. Okay? Many evangelical pastors will admit that they only pray five minutes a day outside of meals. And that's the, you know, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, that prayer meal, uh, mealtime prayer. Aside from that, so many pastors are not praying at all. In fact, when they did another survey, they found that only 16% of evangelical pastors are satisfied with their prayer life. And so I think there seems to be this epidemic of prayerlessness And what's interesting is those who have conducted global studies will show that the more Western a culture is, the less it prays. There are parts of the world where, on average, pastors pray two to three hours daily. But in all the developed Western nations, that number drops to under 30 minutes. And it's made me think about why that might be. I would like to explore that on another occasion, maybe. But I want you to be chewing on that. We in America who follow Jesus Christ are at epidemic proportions really suffering from prayerlessness. And so I want to explore the prayer life of Jesus. I know no better place to turn than to the one who was a son of God, who was himself God, and yet relentlessly committed himself to a life of prayer. And as we explore his prayer life, I think some wonderful, inspiring lessons are going to come up My last thought today is to produce any kind of guilt that would drive prayer life. My earnest desire is that we would behold the prayer life of Jesus and it would spark something in us that would encourage us to pray because Lord knows we need to be praying. And so I want to explore this particular passage, Luke 22, verses 39 to 44. It's a passage in which Jesus is praying Um, with some of his closest friends in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives before he faces his crucifixion. It is one of the most uh, dramatic evenings of his life, and he goes to prayer in that setting, that context. And so I want to identify some elements of the prayer life of Jesus 
you may be intimidated by seeing a sheet of paper with five blanks. We're going to move through it pretty quick, so just hang on with me. Try to focus on each one of those things, an aspect of the prayer life of Jesus. And the first, let me just read the passage for you. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. The first aspect of Jesus' prayer life I want to present to you is that it was consistent. It was consistent. You know, Jesus made his way to the Mount of Olives for the purpose of prayer so regularly that if you hung out with him, if you walked with Jesus, seeing him walk away to go pray was a very regular occurrence. It wasn't like, hey, where's Jesus going? Everyone knew, oh, there he goes. It's that time of the day or it's, uh, we know that posture. We know that certain pace that he's got. He's going to pray. And so they could say of him, Luke observes, it was his custom to go to the Mount of Olives and pray. In other words, to know Jesus is to know this about him. This is one of the fixtures in his life, a regular, very regular occurrence. Remember Daniel, the the, the prophet in the Old Testament, his prayer life was so regular when his enemies sought to trap him, they counted on the regularity, consistency of his prayer life to be part of the trap that they would spring. Now, what do you think drives the Son of God to pray? Did you ever think about that? Can't he just go, hey, I'm going to kind of talk to me. Um, I could just kind of think thoughts and the Father will know. Why does he go out of his way to seek time and physical time and space to kneel before his Father and pray? I know one thing. It wasn't about religious duty. For Jesus, it wasn't about showing some FaceTime, logging that, that, that time with him, saying, look, I was there, I prayed. I, and often that's the way we think of prayer. It's as a religious duty where we feel like we should be doing it more. And let's be honest. Some of us, we're pretty superstitious when it comes to this area. No matter what kind of theology we may be taught, when our kid gets sick or our car gets crashed into or we lose our jobs to downsizing, there may be a suspicion in your heart, well, you know what, maybe... This happened because I'm not praying enough. And there's this idea that what our prayer does is by logging FaceTime with God, we store up good karma and then he repays us with good fortune. But that is not at the heart of the prayer life of Jesus at all. I believe that Jesus was drawn in prayer because time spent with his father was life-giving. You see him especially seeking out these kinds of times at pivotal turning points in his life before times of great trial and struggle, or at important moments when things were, very good things were happening to him. Right after his baptism, right before the start of his public ministry, there are key turning points where he knew if he does not get alone with God, he's going to really struggle through a lot of these things. For Jesus, prayer was his go-to source when he needed something to strengthen his heart. And I wonder what people would observe of us. What would they say about you and me? I I think I have some theories as to what the people close to me might say about me. But what about you? 
what would people say is, oh, that's his go-to thing. There she goes again. She must need something because that's where he or she always turns when things are stormy inside. When they need a little downtime, a little feed me, where do we turn? What would people say of us is our custom, especially at times when we are lacking something and in great need of spiritual nourishment or replenishing? How about you? Think about that for a second. What do you think your spouse, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your best friend, your children would say is the place that you go as your custom when your heart is longing for something more? And I'm always haunted by the end of this verse where it says, and the disciples followed him. I'm convinced that we reproduce ourselves. Whether we intend to or not, the kind of people we're leading are shaping up to be the, the kind of people we are, not the kind of people we project ourselves to be, but in fact the kind of people we actually are. That's sobering for me because I'm learning now more and more as I get older that, past, that churches rarely go where their pastors are not going. In fact, when I look out at this congregation, in many senses, I'm going to end up seeing a mirror of myself. If I'm always, always talking about pro-life and all that, then you guys are going to be buzzing about that all the time. We're always doing these supernatural miracles, and I'm one of these guys who's talking about the power of God shown in supernatural ways. That's going to be the buzz around here. And I realize that this church will probably not become a deeply prayerful church if the pastor and the other pastors here are not ourselves walking there because in the end, people follow where we actually go, not where we tell people we go, but where we actually go. In fact, we're teaching our children how to love and know God. They're watching us closely. and They're learning what Christianity looks like by examining the, the lives of their parents. And so what would people say we do consistently? For Jesus, plugging into God, spending time with Him, was so life-giving that it was his custom and everyone knew it. A second aspect of the prayer life of Jesus was that it was proactive. It was proactive. Do you know who these guys are? That's Peter and Kate Kim, the kids, Josiah and Lydia. And I've told the story before, but I love this. It's one of my favorite stories. Peter was one of these guys who was built Born and bred to be a missionary. He could go anywhere. He could eat, literally. I've seen this guy eat things that made me wretch. Just even remembering what he was eating makes me sick. But one of the things about Peter was, he was one of those human polar bears. You know those guys who in the dead of winter would wear shorts and be sweating? He's like, dang, someone turn on the AC. I couldn't get that about this guy. But then God calls him to Indonesia. Do you know I visited twice now? And it is 90 degrees at 7 in the morning in Indonesia. He knew that about this place, and his heart was troubled. He knew that he did not do well in the heat, and his attitude would betray him. And so as a measure of, of proactive preparation for the whole summer before he left, he rolled up his windows, he wore a jacket in the, in the heat of summer, and he never once touched his air conditioning. I remember finding out about this by riding with him somewhere. I'm like, are you insane? I am so angry in your car right now. What are you doing? And he goes, just please bear with me. You have to endure this because I am training my heart not to become bitter in the place which God is calling me to. I'm training my physical body to learn how to endure heat. But I'm more than that, training my heart not to be angry every time I'm in the heat because that's what happens to me. 
And to me, that's the very definition of proactive. It is someone who knows that a trial is coming and we don't get ready while we're in the battle. We get ready before we enter. And listen to what Jesus says to his disciples as he's going, we're going to pray some bad stuff is about to go down in like a few hours. The, the worst chapter of my life is about to ensue. And as it affects me, it will most definitely affect you. So listen, get on your knees and pray that you will not enter into temptation. And that word temptation is an interesting word. You can, you can take it one of two ways in the Greek in this particular setting. It could be temptation in the classical way we think about it, something that lures me out, but it could also mean testing. And really, they're two sides of the same coin, aren't they? Because trials and suffering and testing often hook into our pre-existing weaknesses. We are at our worst usually when we are enduring suffering because we feel that we've been given in our state of weakness a pass, a free pass to be our lesser selves. Sure, I'm grumpy, but that's because everyone around here stinks. I'm mad at everyone. They hurt me, and so sure, I'm a grumpy guy, but who would blame me? Sure, I'm cutting corners financially, but look at the the hardship I'm under. Who wouldn't? And that's what happens to us. When we face times of trial, the heart is sorely tempted to take the path of least resistance and for us to become that which we least want to be. Our lesser selves, our shadow selves. And Jesus knew that in the events that were about to ensue, his disciples would be attacked greatly. Their natural desire or instinct for self-preservation, for protection, for just breathing and staying free and out of jail would be really hooked into by the enemy. See, what Jesus is saying is, if you will pray, God will strengthen you because prayer is a proactive act of spiritual warfare. It is through prayer that we become armored, that that the, the... Defenses in our lives over our souls become battle-hardened and we become ready for those things which are coming. I think too often we pray only after everything's gone to hell. We've sinned horribly. We've betrayed Christ. We have made fools of Him and of ourselves. And as damage control, as restitution, we slink to God in prayer and say, Oh, it happened. I messed up. Everything's horrible. We failed. Why is it that that's often when we go to prayer? But before the trial, which we know is coming, we don't always turn to him. And so we need to follow the advice of Jesus. When you know that things are coming down the road for you, like Peter heading towards hot, hot Indonesia. Getting your heart ready and saying, God, I know what I'm like. When this happens and I know it's going to happen, I know how I'm going to act. I know my weaknesses and my tendencies, and I know that this heart will betray you. I beg you, strengthen me in Christ. Help me to not be myself, but to be like him. Cloak me, cover me, wash over me, because I know that if you don't completely shape my heart and guard me, when I get there, I'm going to hurt you and a lot of other people. I'm not going to be the person which you have called me to be. Now, Understand that God has offered us redemption, protection, grace. But these are not things that just float in the air and are always applied to us. We are, to, we are called to apply the grace of God to our lives. 
Why do you think he speaks of spiritual warfare? I don't just go, well, Jesus has the victory. I wear a cross around my neck. It's like, it's like garlic to a vampire. I'm always covered. No, you are not. In one sense, you cannot do anything to eternally, but we are called to fight the spiritual battle all the time. And you know how many people I've met over the years who walked away from their active faith thinking it was just apathy setting in? It wasn't apathy It was neglect of their spiritual lives. And as they neglected their spiritual lives, the same thing happened to their soul that's happening to my belly. Anything neglected deteriorates. Sadly, some things that are neglected grow. Um, You know what I'm talking about, right? If you neglect your soul, your soul will betray you. It will wither and life will sorely test it. And we know that these guys, whether it was from being overwhelmed by sorrow or they were just sleepy, every time Jesus came, they're like, how many of you guys struggle with getting sleepy whenever you pray? Be honest. Anybody? Yeah. I I get sleepy a lot when I pray. I don't know what it is. I think it's a spiritual battle. But for whatever reason, they just could not stay awake. And we know in the aftermath, because the Bible records it for us, they did not hold up very well in the struggle that happened afterwards, did they? I wonder what would have happened had they heeded his call to earnestly pray in preparation for the storm that was about to come. Let me give you another aspect of Jesus' prayer life. And it is that it was, and for lack of a better word, I was going to say personal, but I think I'd rather go with this word private for a reason. Look what it says. And he, in the next verse, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And I guess that's as far as Jesus could throw a stone, which if you're one of those people who thinks Jesus is the most awesome guy, he could throw a stone farther than anyone. So it's a pretty far distance. He, he went away from them. Even though he called them to be with him, he knew that for this particular time of prayer, he needed to be alone with God. You know, I think the community we find in the church is a beautiful thing. I think for many of us, it's what keeps us here at Harvest. It's not the world-class preaching. It's the community. You can laugh about that. I was just kidding. It's the community that we find that often roots us to a church. And we love the fellowship of our brothers and sisters. But there is no substitute in Christian life for that time which we must spend alone with God. For which we must tear ourselves away from the frame that our identities get from our community, from the comfort of other people, and say, man, once in a while, you have got to be alone with God. You know, I think it's always funny when I see people who appear to my eyes to be married or in a relationship parked at a red light, and it looks like a husband and wife or a boyfriend and girlfriend, and they're at the red light, and I look over in the car, and the entire duration, the three minutes, they're just staring out front, like they don't even know each other. They look like people in an elevator on a public bus. I'm like, you got nothing to say to each other, right? There's this, there's this, and that's the way we sometimes feel with God. It's like weird to be alone with each other. Because we're always with other people. When we're at a cocktail party, when guests are over at our house, sure, it's easy to have that banter, to go back and forth. Honey, can you hand me the platter? Can you? But as soon as all the guests leave, it's just the two of you. Hey, just us again, I guess. And isn't it weird to have somebody who's supposed to be so important in your life, and yet the, the times that you are just by yourselves, it is intensely awkward? I, I hope, but I, I suspect maybe it's true of some of your marriages. I hope it's not but maybe you're in a relationship that feels like that. I wonder, I bet that for many of us, we feel exactly that way about God. That being alone with God is weird. 
But we absolutely need to have that kind of time. Look what Jesus says in another passage. I don't know what happened there to that slide, but Matthew 6, 6. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. What that's suggesting to us is that there is this important aspect of prayer where he's saying, don't do it in public. And you know, prayer life in, in Jesus' time among the Jews was done standing up, not kneeling, and done publicly in the temple courts out loud so everyone could hear each other's prayers. It was one of the ways, the subnets of communication in that culture, one of the ways we found out about each other was like, oh, listen to him. He's having trouble with his mother-in-law. That guy's got some money problems. And we're, that's part of the way that people learned about each other because prayer was done standing on your feet, shouting to God. But he's saying there are some things which require anonymity, which require private audience with God, and you need to get away and, in fact, shut the door. The idea there is isolation, solitude, a place of quiet. And incidentally, can I just tell you, I think there's something to be said for a consistent physical place, a space which evokes in your heart and your being a natural inclination to pray. I was talking to one of my former mentors uh, he's a man in his 60s, a very wise, godly man. Um, and I was asking him about his prayer life, and he says, you know, one thing that revolutionized my prayer life was that I created a physical space, which to me is several things. And he, he gave me these qualifications for a good prayer space. He said it needs to be quiet, it needs to be beautiful, and it needs to be very isolated, very private, a place where everyone knows that they do not have ready access, and when you're there, they leave you alone, give you a wide berth. He says, you know, I couldn't find a place like that. He's, got, he's a man of means. He lives in Southern California. He's got some bucks. And he says, you know, in all my large house, I couldn't find a place, so I made one. And he made something. It's not quite like this, but it's something. It's in the garden, and he created a little outdoor area. And because he lives in Southern California where it's never cold or rainy, he can enjoy it almost every day of the year. He says, you know what, Dave? When I go out to this place and I sit down, my soul sighs. And something about the beauty of my surroundings awakens in me this appreciation for God. My heart draws near to him. It is so peaceful out there. I hear the birds. There's this water thing he's, he's made that, you know, there's something about the sound of water. Um, it affects my bladder, but it also affects my soul. It just soothes me. And I'm finding that it's so important to have a, a consistent place. Now, my consistent place in seminary was not beautiful. It was a little hole underneath the staircase going up to the attic in a house built in the 1700s. It was a little prayer dungeon. But it was a place that only existed for the purpose of prayer. And all of my housemates, we would take turns using that place, and we'd be huddled in like this. And, and still, I remember that room was a beautiful place to me because it was devoted to a single purpose. And I want to encourage you, I don't think all of us have money. To, some of us do. And if you do, shame on you for not using that money to build a place like that for you to meet with God. What are you using your money for then? Come on. I mean, if you can, if you have a good-sized property and you can create a little place, can I just encourage you? That's why God gave you money. Just use it. For that. And if you're an indoors person, you're wise enough to know we live in Chicago, maybe you can create your space indoors near a window overlooking that property which you paid so much money to have a nice view a yard use it and let people around you know that when i am here i am with god i am not to be disturbed i'm not to be touched right now this is me being with god 
and a need to guard that. Find it, create it, but get a place where you regularly can be alone with God. Face it, how often are you truly, truly alone anyway? And if you have no house, no car, no place, use your car. Drive to the most beautiful place you find that's, that you pass on the way home and park there every day. But get with God by yourself. Let me give you another one. It's that the prayer life of Jesus was surrendered. Surrendered. Look what Jesus says. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. I think it's so important to see the honesty. God's not interested in prepared speeches or prayers that pretend that we feel ways that we don't. I don't think God's interested in us trying to convince our minds by speaking out loud that I really feel this way even though I don't. We begin in prayer with an honest assessment of where I really am because God can handle it. What is the point of deceiving someone who knows your mind and your heart? What is the point of telling him, uh, you know, Lord, I love this suffering I'm going through. It's sharpening me. You don't love it at all. You hate it. You, you have swear words coursing through your mind constantly because of it, don't you? person jiggles you the wrong way, an F word will come out because that's where your heart is in the midst of the suffering. Why in prayer would you say to the Lord, Lord of hosts, you know, why would you give a Ben Stiller and meet the parents prayer? Some fake, lofty, religious sounding thing. God is okay with you saying to him, this is the starting point of where I am. Jesus himself is saying, look, the crossing, the whole separation from you, that fills my heart with dread. I'm wondering out loud if there's any other way we could avoid this. That's Jesus saying that to the Father. Don't euphemize that. Don't gloss over by saying there's some really, really redemptive way to understand that. There isn't. It's an honest communication from a son to his father that what you've got aside from me fills me with dread. I wish I didn't have to go through it. You weaken that, you lessen that, and you completely negate the power of the next phrase, which is, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. If you don't begin with an honest admission that what you are called to endure stinks, then the submission of your will to God does not carry the worship it needs to. We imagine what suffering is going to be like. Jesus knew exactly what it was going to be like. And he told his father, I don't like it. But you know what? In the end, I don't live here for myself. I have a calling, and in the end, your will will trump my will. That's Jesus' prayer. It's a prayer of surrender. We may say that we want God's will, but is it really what we want the most? I think Jesus and his work on the cross clears the way for us to finish some of that unfinished business in our lives, to be able to join Jesus in saying, not my will, but yours be done. But you know what? If, if you're just assuming that you actually want God's will because you say it often, don't be deceived. Here's another way of looking at the question. <clears throat> Can you honestly say that your life today looks exactly the way God wants it to look? If he was your personal trainer and life manager and coach, if he was using you like a puppet to control your every move, would, in fact, your life today still look the way it does? 
I can honestly say to you, I don't think my life would look exactly the way it does. I'm not going to lie and say it's totally different. I've been axe murderer or something like that. I think I'd still be a pastor. I think there are a lot of things in my life that by his grace and mercy have come in line with his will for me. That's, that's a victory that I don't boast in. I give him the credit for that. But I know this, a good way to test whether the battle of wills has been won or lost by God or by me is to question, does my life look the way God would have it to look? And if the answer is no, then God is saying to you, son, daughter, stop exerting your will over mine. Because you're missing out on so many things by saying that what I want will give me a better life than what you want. I wonder what would have happened if Jesus chickened out. If in his humanity he said, that crossing, there's just no way. How about a month from now? How about a year from now? What would humanity have lost out on if the Son of God had not obeyed? Had not been able to say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I'll never forget watching my, my professor in seminary, Dr. Gross, with tears streaming down his face, tell us a story. It's one thing I loved about my seminary. Professors did that. They wept as they shared stories from their heart. And he told me the story in 1993 that while he was traveling on ministry business, he came across O.J. Simpson in an airport. And he recognized him right away. O.J. was sitting on a chair kind of by himself, and people were giving him kind of a wide breath. This is before all the hoopla over the, the murder had even happened. And Dr. Gross felt this strong pull, a surge in his heart, a conviction. Go and talk to O.J. about me. Tell him about the love of Jesus. Go and sit next to him and testify. And Dr. Gross, with tears in his face, said, you know, I, I felt it as clearly as anything I've ever felt. And then I chickened out. I was busy. I had to make my own flight. I was afraid of a celebrity status, of the prospect of public humiliation and rejection and embarrassment. And I just walked by and said, oh, you know, what's OJ going to do? One conversation with him. Is that going to make a difference? And a year later, he saw the news stories of that murder. And he just kept thinking in his heart, if in fact OJ did it, could I have made a difference simply by obeying the Lord? If I not exerted my will over the will of God at a key moment, what might I have seen? What did I miss out on? And that made me, it kind of haunts me to this day. What am I missing out on each time I exert my will over the will of God? Who, unlike me, sees what my life holds around the next corner. I remember in my first year of college, I had to make a decision in that winter break between a backpacking trip to Europe and serving as a counselor at a retreat. Some of you, <laughs> oh, Europe, right? I wanted so badly to go to that trip, go on that trip to Europe. But when the youth pastor asked me to come, there was a difference in the way he was inviting me. I felt a strong pull, I'm supposed to be there. And so that was one of those early occasions in my life where very rarely I answered the will of God over my own. And I had the privilege at that retreat of leading two young guys to Christ. And I just keep thinking, what would I have missed if I had not gone? Because that experience and the thrill, the joy, the pure joy of leading someone to Jesus was so intoxicating 
so permanently imprinted on me, I think it had a great deal to do with how I responded to God's call to vocational ministry. What would I have missed had I not obeyed the Lord in this? I wonder what we're going to miss out on each time that we say, my will, not yours. I just feel the need to say this so that you don't walk away going, man, I stink. This is so hard. Do you know what keeps us from accepting God's will over our own? It's a lack of trust, plain and simple. It's fear. It's fear that if I stop exerting myself, no one will look out for me. Are you kidding me? Do you know what the cross testifies about the way God loves you and me? Do you realize that you trying to fly this plane is going to crash it for sure? Because you're not a pilot. On the cross, God demonstrated that his concern for us so far exceeds our own instinct of self-preservation that the craziest thing we can do is guard ourselves more than we let God guard us. Jesus' death and resurrection is proof for us that our fears and our lack of confidence in God is misplaced. It's misguided. God can be trusted with everything. That's how, and that's the only way a sane person can say, yet not my will, but yours be done. And let me give you one last thing. His prayer life was intense. Do you realize that this was on the eve of of the climactic, horrible end to his earthly life. If I told you that tomorrow you're going to die a horrible, horrible death, painful, horrible, how would you spend your last evening? Some of us would be getting drunk as a skunk so we don't feel anything, right? I mean, how would you be spending your last night on earth before a horrible thing was going to happen to you? I'm amazed that in the midst of everything that was going on in his heart and mind, Jesus uses the last couple hours to seek solitude with God and pray. I, I will admit, I would probably pray somewhere along that last day, but my mind would probably be filled with thoughts of getting my affairs in order, getting my will tidied up, hugging my children, all of that stuff. I don't know that I'd be spending the last night of my life on my knees with God in quiet. But I think it was because Jesus went there that his prayer life was intense. I think most of us wish that our prayer life was a little more passionate. Do you ever pray and you feel like, I can't believe how lame my prayer life is, and in fact, how lame it reveals my life actually is. How come I feel nothing? Do any of you feel that when you try to praise, like there's this numbness that's just there? Why don't I care? I'm praying about the future salvation of my own babies. Why can't I make myself care? Why do I feel so little about the fact that my marriage is being flushed down a toilet with selfishness and anger, and yet I can't seem to get anything going in here? Why is my prayer life so numb? I don't think the goal is to play mind games with ourselves, trying to kickstart the emotional engine. I don't think that's the point of it all. Jesus' prayer life was not intense by artificial means. 
you know what I'm getting at? I've, I've done this before. Where, where some of us just do the whole rocking thing, trying to get, some, get a groove going. Oh, Lord, here we go. And once you get going, the tears start to come, and then you think of your, your loved ones dying, and then, you know, like your tears come. And we play games with ourselves thinking what God wants is emotionalism. But you see, intensity in prayer, emotional passion, they are not goals to be produced. They are the natural byproduct of real things. Do you understand that? They are the natural response to real stuff that's happening. And I think part of the reason that our prayer lives may not be as intense as that of Jesus is that our, our obedience to God is not nearly as radical. Some of us live for security. That needs to be said publicly here. Some of us are obsessed with our own safety. And if not our own, certainly we are, we're going to fight like cornered bears to fight for the security of our children and their future. You can mess with me all you want, but you, tar- you start threatening my kids' future, their education, their well-being, their, their thriving. I will kill you. I will kill you if you touch the security of my loved ones. The truth is some of us are obsessed with safety. And because safety is the rule of your life, you always pursue that which insulates you from danger, even if the call of God brings you to very different places. Now, I'm so proud to say in this church, I watch some of you who could easily succumb to that because of what God's given you, and you've done courageous things. You've brought your children to dangerous places in the mission field. You have pulled them out of that hoity-toity private school and thrown them into the headlong into public school and you know, all those things because part of what you're trying to do is say, I will not worship the security of my family. I will honor the Lord. I appreciate that. I think that's so important. As our obedience to God becomes more radical, stuff will happen in our lives that will naturally produce emotional passion, intensity. And I can tell you, when we went in with, with that group to, in, in Kenya in 2007, we went to the, the, among the Pocots in the, in the Leterre Valley. Anyone on that team remember how scared we were because of Dr. C's preparation? This is a tribe that is paramilitary in their culture. They prize deceiving people who trust them so they can murder them when they're not looking. When they look at you, you look like a farm animal to them. They would as soon kill you as stick a pig with a spear. And we're going to go there and do some ministry. And we're all like, what? You're crazy. I remember passing alligators in large puddles along the way. And, and the drivers saying, if it rains and we get stuck there, we will almost certainly die. They will kill us and eat us in our sleep, man. And then it starts pouring while we're there. And we're looking, oh, Lord, the road's going to be impassable. We're going to die. I can tell you that because of the radical obedience of that part of our lives, we were there in the valley, not theoretically. We were there going, oh, my goodness. When you look into these people's eyes, you understand what he was saying. They look at you like you are not even human. And when we saw the rain, I prayed in a way that was very intense. I didn't pray like, Lord, come on, get, let's get going here. I got I to gotta feel, I was going to die. So I was, I'm like, I, I'm the pastor who brought everyone here to their death and you know, all these orphan kids. And so I was on my, just, I was praying with everything in my being, God, come deliver us. I don't think if I got an email about that back in Chicago, I'd be praying nearly as earnestly as being on the ground in the Litera Valley. 
When we obey the Lord and live for Him and not for safety, we will learn to pray. Because stuff will just happen in our lives that is just crazy. And you will pray. Can I encourage us not to create a mock or empty emotionalism in our prayers, but to be so daring and radical in our followership of Jesus that our lives will demand earnest prayer. That stuff we will be engaged in will require that God comes and delivers us. I hope that that's the way we will learn to live because I think we must learn first to live and then our lives will teach us how to pray. Let me also encourage you the next time you are in trouble and you're in distress, before you pick up a phone to call me or a small group leader or another pastor, go to God. And I think you may discover what Jesus discovered, that an angel will come to you and strengthen you and minister to you. I wonder how many of the appointments we have in this church will be far smoother and less painful if the people in pain would go first to God before they went to a person. You may be amazed at how the Lord comes to you and envelops your heart and gives you peace. So why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? I think it would be weird to finish a message on prayer in any other way than to pray. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.